It's John chapter 5, 45 to 47. Moses wrote of Christ. We'll start reading for the context in verse 39. 539. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is these that bear witness of me. But you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another shall come in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word. We know, Lord, that your word is truth. Therefore, sanctify us in this truth. Teach us more about what your word is all about and teach us Lord to look at the face of Christ and to understand just as Moses wrote of Christ and believed in Christ we should do the same wherever we read in your holy word may our focus always be looking to Christ looking to the face of Christ believing in him believing in his word we ask in his name amen in our chapter, in the last half of the chapter, we remember that Christ has focused on teaching the people that he is indeed the judge of the whole world. Not only the judge of the whole world, but also that as a judge, he has faithful witnesses, faithful testimonies delivered to the people who will be judged so that on that day of judgment, they cannot say, we did not know. No one told us, no one preached to us, no one revealed the truth to us. He has mentioned several witnesses in the past. Now we have come to the last witness, which is the witness of Scripture in verses 39 to 47. The witness of Scripture. Scripture is a witness in the courtroom before the judge of heaven on the day of judgment to accuse us of not believing if in fact we are found to be unbelievers on that day, to accuse us. Scripture itself, the words of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and in this case he's speaking specifically of the books of the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi. These books will witness against us on the day of judgment because we will have heard some of it, or if not, not just some of it, all of it by not only hearing but reading those words, and if we miss the main point, the main testimony of the scriptures, which is Christ, then we are lost. We will be condemned on the day of judgment. That is what he has said in 39 to 44. Generally speaking, the scriptures testify of Christ, therefore we should believe in Christ. 
then he will specify in our verses 45 to 47 with one example, that is the example of Moses. Let's also briefly review 39 to 44. The problem that his antagonists, the problem with Jesus' enemies was that they read, they knew the scriptures of the Old Testament, they knew some of the facts, some of the details of the Old Testament, but they did not believe in the main point of the Old Testament. They did not believe in the main focus of the Old Testament. They did not believe in the person that Moses preached, that Isaiah preached, that David preached. They didn't believe in the main object, the main purpose of their preaching. The main purpose was not to amuse themselves with philosophy and intellectualism and theology in terms of an abstract way of stimulating the mind. That was not the reason the scriptures were given. The scriptures were given that we might see Jesus Christ there and then see our relationship to Jesus Christ. If we do not believe in him, we should believe in him. That is the main point, because if we don't believe in Jesus Christ, there is no eternal life. This is what they missed in verse 39. You think that in them, just the mere knowledge of them, you have eternal life, when it's not that. It is these that bear witness of me. Jesus was saying that the Bible, the words of the Bible, point to him. And if we don't see him, we have missed it altogether. It's, in other words, if you have a vehicle, if you have an automobile, you have all the parts and you know all the parts, except you don't have an engine. What use is that vehicle? If you don't have an engine, you cannot turn on the ignition and expect the vehicle to take you anywhere to be of any value to you. It doesn't matter if you know what the hood is and what the door is and what the rear view mirror is. It doesn't matter if you have all that knowledge. You need to have the engine, the main point, in order for it to be of any value to you. In the same way, there's no point knowing the names of the books of the Bible or whatever we might know if we don't know what the Bible is all about. It is all about Christ, as he says in verse 39. However, those who refuse to believe in Christ, to see Christ in the pages of the Bible and to believe in him, these are people who do this unwillingly. I mean, uh, they do it willingly. They are unwilling to come to Christ. They are unwilling to believe in Christ. They don't want to do it. It's not a matter of ignorance, mere ignorance. If it were a matter of mere ignorance, then all we need is a teacher to enlighten and inform people. Sometimes that is necessary, but in this case, with people who are stubbornly refusing to believe in Christ, it has to do with a deliberate unwillingness to believe in Christ. That's what he says in verse 40. You are unwilling to come to me. But why were they unwilling? 41 to 44, because they sought the praise of men. They sought the approval of men. They wanted others to like them. They wanted many friends. They wanted others to say that they were good. They wanted the flattery and the praise, the approval of other men. This is their problem. Whenever anyone wants to do that, then he's not seeking the approval of God. It's impossible at the same time 
to receive the flattery and the approval, the praise of men, and at the same time receive praise from God. Because men, by their very nature, are enemies of God. And God is at wrath and at enmity with them. There is no reconciliation. We cannot be fixated on the flattery of men. When we are on that glory of men, we're not going to be seeking God, which is their problem. Because they would happily receive others, false teachers, for example, in 43, if another shall come in his own name, you will receive him. They wanted to have not uh, a one-focus, strict, straight path to heaven, but they wanted many paths to heaven so that if they believed in many false teachers, they won't brand them false teachers, but the Bible brands them false teachers, that if they have many false teachers, then we don't have to be so serious about religion. We don't have to be so solemn about the gospel. We don't have to take our life seriously and our sin seriously. This is why people want the praise of men. They don't need to take what the Word of Christ says at face value and say, I don't match up to it. Lord, help me. They don't want that exchange happening in the human heart. I don't match up. Lord, help me. They don't want that. Therefore, they seek glory from others and not from the one and only God. Now that brings us to verse 45 where our Lord specifically uses the example of Moses. He mentions Moses in 45 to 47. Now why would he use Moses as an example? He's using Moses because among the Jews and even the Samaritans, the Samaritans who were partially Jews and they lived in the northern part of the land of Israel, some of them, or the Samaritan religion, believed only in Moses. And then among the Jews, they had, some of the Jews had this belief that Moses is inspired, Moses wrote by the Holy Spirit, Moses is authoritative, but the prophets such as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, these other parts of the Bible, they have a secondary authority and a secondary inspiration. Secondary authority, secondary inspiration. Some Jews believe like that. Not the Samaritans, but some of the Jews, a secondary authority. And then there's another category of Jews who believe like we do, that is, it's all inspired, all from the Holy Spirit, from Genesis to Malachi. Okay? So in order to get to the heart of the matter with any of these groups of people who might hear these words, he goes straight to Moses because all of these groups, universally, they ascribed authority and godliness, inspiration, the Holy Spirit's work in the life and ministry of Moses. No one doubted that except the most extreme atheistic um, antagonistic person would deny Moses. So he goes to Moses. Now, now that he goes to Moses, because they themselves would give lip service to believing in Moses, he's going to take Moses away from them. Jesus is going to take the rug, uh, uh, pull it off their, their 
their standing ground and make them fall by Moses. They put confidence in Moses, but now Jesus is going to say, Moses is not on your side. Moses actually preached Christ, and you don't actually believe in Moses. You claim to believe in Moses, you claim to believe in the Bible, but you really don't believe in the Bible. And I know that, and I'll show you that, because you don't believe what I'm telling you. This is very relevant for our day because there are teachings, there are doctrines, there are denominations, there are churches, however we might describe them, that refuse to see that Moses wrote of Christ and that Moses believed in Christ. When Jesus says here, he wrote of me, when he says that in verse 46, he not only means that technically and factually that Moses wrote documents that are in the books of Genesis to Deuteronomy that speak of Christ. He not only means that, but he means that Moses understood, Moses believed in Christ, so why don't you believe in Christ? That is really where he is, he is hitting them hard. That Moses not only wrote, but he also believed in Christ, and yet you don't believe in me. This is the connection he is making. Let's see this in verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. By this statement, he does not mean he's not going to be the judge on the day of judgment. We know he doesn't mean that because he already said in verse 27, 26 and 27, John 5, 26, For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. On that day of judgment, the Son of Man, Christ, will execute judgment. So ultimately, Christ is the judge, and Christ will lob accusations against people who claim to believe in Moses or the Scriptures, but not really believe in them. So when he says, do not think that I will accuse you, what he means is, I'm not going to be the only one who accuses you. Moses is also going to accuse you. Moses, the one in which you have a false hope. He's going to be your accuser. The one that you think is on your side is really not going to be on your side because when you die, there's going to be a great surprise and it'll be too late. He's going to end up being your accuser. Now, by the way, it's not only Moses who will be the accuser of all unbelievers, but you and I. You and I will also be accusers of unbelievers. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2. 1 Corinthians 6, 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? He says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? We are included in that category. We are the saints, and we will judge the world on the day of judgment. 
The great judge who will superintend all that happens on the day of judgment is Christ himself, the Son of Man. However, he will have us as the minor judges or the under judges under him condemning and judging the world. This is in one way in which the Bible means that we will reign with him. We will be kings like him. When the Bible speaks like this, it's speaking of it in this regard. This is one of the meanings of us being the judge of the world or kings, just like Jesus is a king and forever. So Moses and all of us, all the saints, including Moses and all the prophets, the apostles throughout the world, we will judge the world. We will judge these people too who refused to believe in Christ. This is why Jesus says, do not think that I will accuse you. He will accuse, but he will do so by means of us, lesser judges, judging the world, including Moses. Uh, we have to clarify this because some may take this verse out of context. Do not think that I will accuse you. If we lift it out of context, then we might say, Jesus doesn't accuse anybody ever. So if Jesus doesn't accuse anybody ever of sin, then we can't go around talking about sin and pointing out others' sins. We can't talk about sin because if Jesus doesn't accuse people of sin, why are we accusing people of sin? This happens constantly whenever the gospel is shared. Yet, that's not what Jesus meant. He is not the only judge. He is the ultimate judge, but meantime, we are judges. We are accusers in this world and even in the world to come on that day of judgment. Next, verse 45, he says, The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. Moses is going to accuse them because they have put their hope in Moses. Now, in reference to Moses and their false confidence in Moses, let's see um, what Jesus says about this and what he says about his accusers or his opponents. John chapter 7. John chapter 7, ways in which these people have misunderstood Moses. John 7, 19, 7, 19. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Notice there, Moses gave the law to them, but they don't carry it out. In fact, they are seeking to put to death an innocent man. Moses didn't teach that. They claimed Moses, but they are contradicting Moses. Another example, it says in John chapter 7, 7, 48, 7, 48. In this case, the Pharisees, they are afraid that some among themselves will believe in Christ. So 7, 48, no one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this multitude which does not know the law is accursed. 
See the confidence they have, the false confidence? They say, you know, the, the multitude, the common people, these people, the crowds, they don't know anything. They're just a bunch of ignorant people. They don't know anything. But we know the law, the law of Moses. So we're not going to follow the crowds just like they are. They're following after Christ. We're not going to do that because we know better. Moses is on our side. We know the law, but they don't. So they are under a curse, uh, under a curse because they don't follow the law. What about John chapter 9? One final example of their false confidence. In John chapter 9, Jesus healed a blind man. He was blind from birth. Blind from birth. And yet, those who saw the miracle, or the evidence of the miracle that this blind man now sees, they refused to believe in Christ. And what do they use as their excuse for rejecting Christ? Look at John 9, John 9, 28. John 9, 28. And they reviled him. That is, the Pharisees reviled the healed man, the seeing man. They reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. They reviled him. So they are slandering him, they're mocking him, ridiculing him, denigrating him by saying this, You are his disciple. So they are reviling him, blaming him for being a disciple of Christ, and then they say they are disciples of Moses. And then in 29, we know that God has spoken to Moses, which is true. God did speak to Moses, but what's ironic is they say, but as for this man, meaning Christ, we do not know where he is from. They're claiming ignorance of Christ and knowledge of Moses. They only have part of the equation correct. They only have part of it correct. But they refuse to see the connection between Moses and Christ. Well, Jesus further confronts them. John 5, 46. John 5, 46. We cannot make any dissonance, any contradiction between Moses and Christ. There cannot be. Verse 46. Why? For... Or because, because if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Why? Because he wrote of me, or he wrote about me. If you believed Moses, then you would believe me. So Jesus says, says that Moses and Christ are teaching the same thing. If you believed what Moses taught you to believe, then you would believe me. And why? Because Moses wrote of me. Moses did not write of someone else. Moses did not write of himself as the object of faith. He wrote of Christ as the object of faith. Jesus Christ. Moses wrote that one should believe in Christ. 
And he preached that, he wrote it and he preached it because he himself believed it. He believed it, therefore the others should also believe it. Further, he says in 47, But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? If you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? By that one question, Jesus has made it impossible to make a separation between Moses and Christ. He has made it impossible to say that Moses wrote differently than of Christ. He wrote of Christ. Christ is preaching himself, right? Preaching faith in the Son of Man. He's preaching faith. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He's preaching himself. The Son of Man came not to serve, but um, uh, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Matthew 20, 28. He came to do those things. So he was preaching uh, what he was going to do for our salvation on the cross. Right? So if that's what Jesus preached, that's what he expected the people to believe, then he's saying, if you don't believe Moses taught the same thing, then you won't believe what I'm telling you. He's saying, Moses is in harmony with me. I am in harmony with Moses. We're teaching the same doctrine. We're teaching the same gospel. We're teaching the same way of salvation. Moses taught the people to believe in Christ. That's what he taught. Okay, now if this is what Christ is establishing here, is there proof of this elsewhere? Is there proof of this elsewhere in Scripture? May we illustrate this in Scripture? Yes. Now, why is it that we must insist on this teaching? Well, number one, Jesus says it right here. If Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, teaches this doctrine, that it's necessary to believe it, then we must believe it. There's no ambiguity in his words. Right? There's nothing unclear in his words. He is being absolutely clear as to what he is talking about, what he means. So we can't say Jesus didn't believe it, Jesus didn't teach it. Next, we will see in a moment that there is harmony between Moses and the other prophets. There's harmony between Moses and the apostles. We cannot believe that what Jesus taught the apostles did not believe, or that the apostles started a new teaching, a new gospel, a new way of salvation that Jesus did not teach, and Malachi did not teach, David did not teach, Isaiah did not teach, and Moses did not teach. We cannot make a separation, a division between Moses, Christ, the apostle Paul. We cannot make these distinctions. We cannot do so. And therefore, we must believe there's only one gospel and one way of salvation from the beginning of the world until the end of the world. Now, these are the implications. We will seek in a moment to prove these implications. The reason this is so 
severe. This is so serious. This is such an important topic to understand. It has to do with the common belief that the people in the Old Testament were saved apart from believing in the death of Christ. The common teaching, the common belief is that the people of the Old Testament, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Caleb, so on, all the rest of the prophets, the major and minor prophets, that all of these people and the people who heard them and believed, including Hannah, the mother of Samuel, including Abigail, the wife of David, and whoever else we might mention, that all of these people, they did not believe in the coming death and resurrection of Christ for their redemption, for their salvation and eternal life. The common belief is that they did not, that they just believed in good works or they believed in faith in whatever concepts they had of God or whatever God might have told them, that's what they believed. They believed in things gradually, they did not believe in Christ specifically. They believed in God generally, but they did not believe in Christ's death and resurrection specifically. This is the common belief within Christianity. It's known by different names. The most modern and current name, popular name today, is dispensationalism. Dispensationalism, this is its modern evangelical form. Though in church history, there are many forms or many names for this doctrine, it is a false doctrine because it undermines the Bible. It undermines the one true gospel. And why would, people ask, why would anyone want to believe that? Why would anyone want to believe that there are different ways of salvation, different gospels throughout time? They want to believe it because they want to believe that most people or everyone goes to heaven. They want to believe that the way of salvation to heaven is not so straight-laced. It's not so restricted to faith in the death of Christ. They want to believe that their ancestors, their grandmother, their grandfather, those in, even in their current family, that their children, their grandchildren, their relatives, the people in distant places, because people are generally good, they believe, they think that why in the world would God send a faithful Hindu to hell, a faithful Buddhist to hell, a faithful Muslim to hell? Why in the world would God do that? And even there are good atheists. Why would a good atheist be thrown into hell? Some of them don't, or all of them, they, they don't believe in Christ, and some of them have never even heard of Christ, so why would God send them to hell? And they seek as their justification, well, if Abraham didn't believe in Christ, and Moses didn't believe in Christ, and David didn't believe in Christ, then we cannot insist that everybody who is saved has to believe in Christ. This is what they want to believe. Whether they articulate it that way to you or not, that's really what's at the bottom of it. Whether they admit it to you or not, that's really what's at the bottom of it. They don't want to make the way of salvation so restricted in Christ. Okay, now, what evidence do we have of what Jesus is teaching us here? Let's see 
again in the mouth of Christ from one that is John chapter 8. John chapter 8. John 8. And we'll begin. We'll begin at verse 56. 8, 56. Christ here is debating his enemies. And in verse 56 he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. The Jews therefore said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Here in 56, your father Abraham, he means your literal father, your physical father, meaning grandfather, great-great-grandfather, since from Abraham's time to the time of Christ, about 2,000 years have passed. About 2,000 years from the time Abraham lived and the time Christ came in his first coming. 2,000 years. But Jesus says that Abraham, your physical father, was actually someone who believed in me. He says, he rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. By this Jesus meant, though Abraham lived 2,000 years ago, Abraham was told the gospel, and he looked ahead, he anticipated the future, his hope was in the coming Christ, and when he came, or, or when he was preaching or believing in Christ, he knew that Jesus would come one day and die for his sins, and he was glad about it. He rejoiced in that. He was glad and he rejoiced to see that Jesus would come into the world. Then, 57. The Jews therefore said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Remember, Jesus was not 50. He was only 30 years old around this time, about 30. And... They said, you're not even 50. How in the world could you have taught Abraham so that Abraham would anticipate you coming into the world? How is it possible? Well, that's because Jesus appeared to individuals and, and groups of people in the Old Testament. And this in, in Scripture or outside of Scripture is called Christophany, appearance of Christ. Temporarily, Jesus appeared to Abraham. Temporarily, Jesus appeared to Moses and others in order to preach the gospel to them, in order to tell them what they should write as scripture. And he was teaching them. He was the great teacher to Moses. He was the great teacher to David. He was the great teacher to Isaiah. Jesus was the one who revealed himself to many in the Old Testament to teach them the gospel that he would eventually come into the world to die for their sins. This is what he is meaning here. The Jews know that. They know that that's what he means. That's why they said, you're not even 50 years old. How could that be? They forgot that God is the God of the miraculous, the supernatural, and he can do whatever he wants and reveal his word to the prophets. And Jesus is saying that he did that. Verse 58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. 
I am. He does not say, I was before Abraham, I have been before Abraham, but he says, I am. This is a quote from Exodus 3.14, where God reveals himself to Moses and says, I am who I am. Tell them, the, the people of Israel, tell them, I am has sent me to you. Tell them I am, the I am. And he quotes that, which means that even Jesus is saying he appeared to Moses in the burning bush. That's Exodus 3 and 4. Jesus appeared to Moses in the burning bush and he revealed himself as the great God, the eternal God, to Moses in the burning bush. They knew very well Jesus' claims here, that he revealed himself to Abraham, he also revealed himself to Moses, He's killing two birds with one stone right here because the subject at hand is Abraham, but to prove it, he also cites Moses who wrote it because he wrote Genesis and Moses also wrote Exodus and God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. You see all the connections. They knew it very well. That's why because they rejected it, because they believed Jesus was blaspheming or insulting God, they wanted to kill him by stoning him to death. So Jesus is telling them by his own words, I was there and I taught Abraham and I taught Moses. Another place, Luke 24. Turn back a few pages to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 24 from the mouth of Christ. Luke 24 25. Jesus has risen from the dead. He joins two men going to a village called Emmaus, from Jerusalem to Emmaus. This is the road to Emmaus. And these two men, they are incredulous on the testimony of the women who came and told them that they saw that the tomb was empty and that the Lord had risen from the dead. They are not believing that that actually happened. Well, Jesus encounters them. They don't recognize that it is Jesus, but they recognize later that it's him, but they don't recognize at this moment that it is Jesus risen from the dead. And when they don't believe it, this is Jesus' answer to them. Luke 24, 25. And he, Christ, said to them, to the two men, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. These men should have known that Christ would die on the cross be buried for three days, and rise again immortally, gloriously, on the third day. They should have known all of this on the basis of the Old Testament alone. That's why he calls them foolish and slow of heart to believe. Foolish and slow of heart to believe what? All that the prophets have spoken. He means all of the Old Testament. And in 26, what is the summary? What is the gist? What is the concise way to understand what the Old Testament is all about? It is 
the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. There it is in verse 26. The Christ to suffer these things and to enter into His glory. He must die on the cross. He must be persecuted and put to death on the cross, not for His sins, but for our sins. He must be buried, and then He must rise gloriously, ascend gloriously, reign gloriously right now, and then return gloriously, have a glorious day of judgment, and have eternal glory in His eternal kingdom. That's all summarized in these words right here. His sufferings and His glory. Sufferings and His glory. This is what the Old Testament is about. Yes, Moses built a tabernacle, but we should not get lost in the minutiae of the tabernacle. We should not do that. We should see Christ in the tabernacle and so forth. This is what he means when he says, It is these that testify of me. Moses wrote of me, and right here too, that Christ should suffer and enter into his glory. And how do we know he started with Moses and the book of Genesis, verse 27? And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. If he began with Moses, we do know Moses wrote the law, which is the books of Genesis to Deuteronomy. We also see from this that he had to start in the book of Genesis. We'll see in a moment that there are evidences in the book of Genesis that Moses, who wrote Genesis, wrote of Christ in the book of Genesis. He did so. So, Moses preached Christ. Now, let's turn to Galatians 3. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3. The Apostle Paul, in this letter, he is dealing with a heresy in the region of Galatia because some false prophets, false apostles, false teachers, false pastors have arisen where they say, it's okay to believe in Christ, but actually you need to add circumcision to Christ. Christ is not enough. Believing in Him is not enough. They said, Christ plus, plus uh, circumcision. Add circumcision to your faith in Christ. And Paul's argument here, his refutation in Galatians is, no, the moment you do that, it's heresy. The moment you do that, you are under a curse. You cannot say faith in Christ plus circumcision. And once you add circumcision, you need to add everything else. It doesn't do. It's either Christ, Christ is all, or nothing. So if you say you believe in Christ, do not add circumcision and do not add anything more. And if you do so, you don't truly believe in Christ. You are under a curse, which is what he said in chapter 1, 6 to 10. In chapter 1, 6 to 10, he says that if we believe that, we are under a curse and we believe a different gospel, a different false gospel. That's what he taught in chapter 1. Now, to teach the Galatians who prided themselves with Abraham and Moses, they prided themselves in believing in Abraham and Moses. He's using Abraham and Moses as examples to refute their belief that they 
can say Christ plus something else. He's refuting them. And therefore we pick it up in chapter 3, verse 6. 3, 6. Even so Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith that are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Here he teaches us that Abraham believed in the gospel. By verse 8 we see that the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, which gospel includes that all the nations shall be blessed in you. He'll tell us later in this chapter what he means that the nations will be blessed in Abraham. He means blessed in Abraham's singular seed, singular offspring, Jesus Christ. That's what he means. Now, this gospel that Abraham believed according to verse 8, he picks up on what this is by verse 13. Verse 13, 313. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. This gospel Abraham believed, in verse 13, it includes belief that Christ would become a curse for us. Christ would have to die for our sins. And then he quotes Moses, who not only wrote the book of Genesis and the life of Abraham, but he also wrote the book of Deuteronomy, where he quotes, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. From Deuteronomy 21, 23. So, Paul says, the gospel Abraham believed included as its central point the fact that Christ would redeem us from the curse because whoever is hanged on a tree, meaning crucified on a tree, he is under a curse, but if Christ is cursed, He's not cursed because of his sins. He's cursed for Abraham's sins and also our sins in verse 14. The Gentiles, all who believe just like Abraham are blessed with Abraham. Abraham had the Holy Spirit. We also have the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ's death. Further, look at verse 16. Now he is saying, you all will say, well then why did Moses write the law? Why did Moses come along hundreds of years after Abraham? Didn't Moses teach us another way to believe? Didn't he teach us another way to be saved? Didn't Moses teach us another gospel? This is the objection, which is not only the Galatian objection, it's a common objection. Abraham's way was one way, Moses' way is another way. And Paul is saying here, starting at verse 16, that's not the case. Or starting in 15, that's not the case. Because God established one way with Abraham and he's not going to change it. 
when Moses comes along. He's just going to further illustrate it with Moses. He's not changing it with Moses. He is further illustrating it with Moses. That's his point in 15 to 22. In 15 to 22, that's his point. 15, brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Correct? When men with each other, when they make a covenant or a treaty or a contract with one another, whatever is written, whatever is agreed upon, they sign, and when they sign and they agree or handshake, whatever, when they agree to something, you cannot alter it, you cannot change it, unless by agreement, right? One side cannot alter it or change it. It can't happen unilaterally. It has to happen in the proper way. So he says, no one sets aside the conditions. You don't swear to something, swear an oath to something, and then violate it. And if that's the case with men, what about with God? Doesn't God take His word more seriously than men do with each other? Yes. So then verse 16, now the promises of the covenant. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. If your Bible does not have a capital S for seed, it should be a capital S. Because the seed he means, the offspring he means is Christ. He does not say, Moses did not say by writing it, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. So God speaking to Abraham and then God writing through Moses did not say plural seeds. He meant it singularly, one seed. And when he said the one seed, he meant Christ, which means that God through Christ, preached Christ to Abraham. And Moses knew that because Moses is recording these words in the book of Genesis. And he con continues with that, and the prophets continue with this singular seed expectation throughout the pages of the Old Testament. That's what he's saying here. Another example is verse 19. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. Having been ordained through, an, through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed, capital S it should be, the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. You would ask, people ask, well, why the law? Earlier I said it was a further illustration of our need for redemption. The law of Moses the rituals of the tabernacle, the festivals, became further illustrations, further types, further manifestations of our need for redemption in Christ. That's why, because of transgressions, meaning our transgressions need to be highlighted, need to be brought to the surface, and there are more examples of it under Moses because the people were so dense, the people were so stubborn, they were so blind. They needed to have more illustrations. So he gave them more illustrations because of their transgressions. But those laws were not there for salvation because they were there in place temporarily 
until the seed should come, until Christ should come to whom the promise had been made. God promised to Christ before the foundation of the world that when he came into the world, he would save us and we would belong to him. That was the promise. This is what is in the pages of the Old Testament. The passage in verse 16 is taken from Genesis 22, Genesis 22:18, And there are many references like that in the book of Genesis. Now, one more illustration, and we'll close with this, and that is, remember uh, Acts chapter 3. Please turn with me to Acts chapter 3. Um, remember that Moses, in the book of De Deuteronomy, he spoke of a prophet who was to come. A prophet who was to come. Well, who was that prophet who was to come? And what did Moses mean? But there's, that there's going to be a prophet, a certain special prophet, that's what he meant. That when he comes, you should pay attention to him. And if you don't pay attention to him, God's going to require it of you. He's going to punish you for that. Who was that prophet? And by that I'm referring to Deuteronomy 18:15 to 18, which is cited here. We pick it up at verse 22. Acts chapter 3, verse 22. Moses said, The Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed in everything he says to you. And it shall be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed, capital S it should be, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. The apostles here, and this is Peter especially, Peter specifically is preaching this message. And Peter cites in verse 22 from Deuteronomy 18.15 and then later in 23.18.19 and he's saying here, that Moses predicted that this special prophet would arise. And who is this special prophet? It's Jesus Christ. And you better listen to him because he is the ultimate prophet. He's the one who is filled with the Holy Spirit perfectly. He's the one who lives a sinless life. And he is a prophet in that the Father sent him into the world to be the supreme, ultimate, best prophet there ever was into the world and you should listen to him, give heed to him. And if you don't, you will be utterly destroyed. He's talking about salvation, eternal life and eternal death. Then Peter says, all the prophets did this in verse 24. And he even says, Abraham, you love Abraham, you say. You say Abraham is your forefather, right? But Abraham was preached this and he believed this. He believed in his singular seed, eventually coming into the world to die for his sins. 
This is Jesus who was raised from the dead. And if you want this blessing, turn from your wicked ways. This is it right here. So these are just a few of the many, many numerous examples of Moses and the prophets preaching Christ. Therefore, when we read the Bible, whether Genesis, Exodus, or any place, look for these connections to Christ. Do not be intrigued philosophically. Do not be intrigued by history and archaeology. Do not be intrigued by your ability to remember. Don't be intrigued by anything. Don't be flattered by anything that you learn in those ways. What you must believe is in Jesus Christ. Believe in Jesus Christ because your knowledge is worthless unless you believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in Him that He died and rose again for you and preach the same gospel to others. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we pray that you will grant us faith, faith in Christ, and grant us also this ability to see from your holy word from the beginning to the end that it is teaching Christ and salvation in him. May we and those we love believe in the death and resurrection of Christ. In his name we ask. Amen.